What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks look poised to continue pumping the brakes on their slide after the Dow and the S&P snapped their five-day losing streak. Those gains could just be the beginning of a big run for stocks, according to ARK's Kathy Wood, as she argues that deflation will be key on investors' radars. Apple preparing to pull back the curtain on its latest hardware releases with big expectations for a new iPhone to help propel that stock. Democrats formally unveiling their tax plan to pay for the president's trillions in new government spending as the White House looks to lock in key members of support there. And then Hurricane Nicholas, Hurricane Nicholas, officially making landfall in the already battered Gulf region as that region pushes to get energy operations back online from Hurricane Ida. It's Tuesday, September 14th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Right now, futures are indicating some modest moves at the opening bell. The Dow is implied higher by just about 73 points. The S&P higher by about eight points and the Nasdaq by just about nine. The Nasdaq has been an underperformer over the last couple of days. This after the Dow and the S&P climbed for the first time in six sessions yesterday, the Dow climbing more than 260 points, while the S&P gained about a quarter of a percent thanks to a rally by energy-related stocks. Let's get a check on the Treasury market as well ahead of that big report on consumer inflation with that latest CPI reading out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Right now, benchmark 10-year Treasury note yields just a hair below 1.34 percent. Two-year note yields just a hair below 22 basis points or 0.22 percent. The long bond, by the way, 1.915 percent. We also want to take a look at the cryptocurrency market as well. Bitcoin price is currently on the rise by just about 3 percent, 46,139 the last trade there. Ethereum price is also up by about 3 percent, 33.54, spot 45 there. And then Litecoin, the subject of a lot of controversy yesterday, 181.32 per coin, just about half of 1 percent upside there for Litecoin. Speaking at the annual SOL conference just yesterday, ARK Invest's Kathy Wood saying the price of Bitcoin could surge to 500,000 in the next five years if companies and institutional investors continue to pour into that sector. More of her market commentary in just a few moments here. But first, let's go worldwide with the markets. Our own Juliana Tattlebaum is live in London with the latest there at the early trade in Europe. Juliana, what are we seeing? Dom, good morning. Well, we're off to a pretty sluggish start here in Europe. We have bounced off the lows, but still uh, we are seeing the Stock 600, the main benchmark trade, as touch below the flat line. It's a mixed picture below the surface with no major moves in either direction. We've got a bit of red on the board for the French market, the CAC 40 down about 0.5%. Here in the UK, the FTSE 100 also uh, seeing some losses, but outside of that, some modest gains. The Italian market leading the way higher, up about six-tenths of a percent. The German market also um, edging some 
slightly higher, about 0.2%. Investors here uh, waiting anxiously that U.S. inflation print for August coming out later today as well. So seems like we're in a little bit of a holding pattern. Also on the political front, we're now just 12 days away from the German federal election. So investors in Germany bracing for that uh, that that uh, election outcome. Turning to the sectors, this is what the split looks like this morning. Uh, pretty even picture here. We've got autos outperforming up about 1.3%. Oil and gas also catching a bid this morning up about 0.4%. Real estate up 0.2%. We had some news out of Venovia over in the German real estate place, uh, real estate place uh, dropping its closing conditions and its takeover bid for rival Deutsche Wohnen. So now raising the prospect of that deal going through. It's been a lot of back and forth with those two companies uh, for several months now. On the downside from a sector perspective, basic resources underperforming down about 1.3%. Household goods, insurance, and utilities would just flag that uh, we've also got some news from online grocer Ocado this morning. Disappointing. That stock trading toward the bottom of the stock 600. Dom, back over to you. Juliana Tattelbaum in London. Thank you very much for that. Let's get a look at some of your morning's top stories. Silvana now is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Morning, Dom. Dom, Apple is urging customers to install a new security update over potential security breach concerns. The move coming after researchers warned that an Israeli spyware company had developed a way to take control over nearly any Apple phone, computer, or watch. The malicious software takes control of a device by first sending a message through Apple's iMessage app and then hacking through a flaw in how the company processes images. Researchers say the group has been exploiting the vulnerability since February. COVID case counts in the U.S. are showing signs of easing following their recent resurgence. The seven-day average is about 117,000 as of September 12, according to the CDC. That's down from the most recent peak of around 184,000 at the beginning of the month. There have also been promising signs when it comes to COVID-related hospitalization and death tallies falling as well. And ARK Invest Kathy Wood is making the bull case for the market roads ahead. Speaking to our Andrew Ross Sorkin yesterday at the annual SALT conference, Wood said that millennials will be key to the investing landscape in the decades ahead. She also believes that deflation instead of inflation will be a big investing theme going forward. I believe we are seeing it's going to be incredibly confusing, I think, to people. Just look at what's happened to the bond market this year. You know, against all expectations, yields have dropped from, uh, I think it was 1.75 at the peak in March down to 1.3 as inflation expectations are exploding, right? Uh, We believe the reason for that is that we're probably, when all is said and done and the dust clears from the supply chain problems and everything, we're probably in a highly deflationary world. Wood adds that costs should come down drastically as new technology changes the world order. Dom? Technical innovation always at the forefront there. Thank you very much, Silvana, for that. We'll see you later on. Let's get more on Wood's take overall and the markets right now with Jenny Harrington, CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management, also a CNBC contributor, often featured on our halftime report. Jenny, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let's talk about whether or not deflation is the cause for worry right now. That is certainly not the consensus view, especially as everyone looks towards that big CPI print later on this morning. 
Right. At least in the short term, it's certainly not the worry. I would say, if anything, the headlines that I'm reading from the strategist or just the titles are more, is inflation really transitory? Because it doesn't seem to be. I think one of the things that we need to be careful about as portfolio managers is using confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is where you seek something out that supports your theory. So where, you know, deflation supports the really, really high tech, high growth stocks. And that might be a little bit of confirmation bias leaking into that perspective. That's really human nature. So I do the same thing, you know, for my portfolio that's really dividend oriented, that's more hard asset oriented, that's value leaning. I probably skew on the other side of that and think like, oh no, maybe we've got inflation coming. Maybe that's creeping up and you need to be careful or I need to be careful to listen very clearly to Kathy and say, hmm, is she, is she more right than I am? You know, Am I more right that this isn't transit, that this isn't deflationary, that it's transitory, and then, sorry, and that it's not that transitory and inflation may persist? Who knows where it nets out? I think the reality is, is it's the level of inflation that we're more worried about. Um, I actually think there will be inflation. I just don't think it's going to be runaway. I think we're going to get back to a kind of normal pace of life, you know, of the economy. And that would argue for some version of inflation. So, so Jenny, I mean, it, it, you, you are, and we, we know very well that you are a, a dividend-oriented, income-oriented investor. So, so that means that inflation has to be front and center in your mind. Is this an environment right now where those dividend-type paying stocks are, are the most attractive option for you, given what your worries are about inflation? Well, you know what's funny is it's actually not front and center in my mind, like not at all. And the reason for that is that when you have the 10-year treasury persistently at 1.3%, right, and bond yields just so low that they basically give you no attractive investment opportunity, then you, you get to actually just invest and look at the stocks. If the, tre- if the 10-year treasury were at three and a half, four, five percent 5%, at that point, it starts to become competitive for dividend stocks. But we're nowhere near there, nor do I think we're going anywhere near there. So no, that's not what I'm looking at. What I'm looking at are things like, what do I expect earnings growth to be? What do I expect the economy to look like? You know, will people shop more in um, brick and mortar stores this year versus online? Will we be in a less digital world this year, which we are, than we were last year? So those are the things that are really driving my investment decisions So, so, right so okay, so those corporate fundamentals matter, Jenny. Then, then if those corporate fundamentals mm-hmm. are the ones that, are, that you're looking at right now, is there any part of the market that's attractive given the fact that, yes, we had a five-day yeah. losing streak, but we're still about less than 2% away from record highs in the overall market? Well, it's so funny because preparing to be on this morning, I was thinking what's attractive to me. And then the, the earlier segment just totally supported where I was going anyway, which is um, REITs, real estate investment trusts. There's a lot of attractive opportunity out there. Energy, energy is down about 10% over the last couple months. Um, there's a lot of attractiveness in, in energy. And actually in healthcare too, I think there have been some concerns that maybe there would be price controls. And a lot of the healthcare stocks have traded down between 5 and 7%. So if you want me to get granular, I can. I can throw out stocks if you want me to. Absolutely, because I'd love to hear what the ideas are. <laughs> because, because, I mean, healthcare we know has been sure. so, so, so front and center with the COVID pandemic, but it's not necessarily just COVID-related stocks. Not Moderna, not Pfizer that are on the top of your list. Right. So, for example, we invest in AbbVie and Bristol-Myers and Amgen and Glaxo. We also invest in Pfizer. These guys are all down 5 to 8% over the last month. Like, if you've been waiting for an opportunity, if the market were down 5 to 8%, you'd, you'd say, great buying opportunity. Meanwhile, they're trading collectively at under 13 times earnings. You look out to 22, 2022's earnings growth. It's all mid to high single digit. Um, it's pretty positive. And, they, and as we return to normal, as people... And I know your segment earlier was talking about like 
or rather the segment before that was talking about people, hospitals being full, people can't get normal things done. That's not going to persist forever. So as normalcy returns, as we go to the hospital for normal vaccines, for normal procedures, for normal everything, and that's happening. Like we can't pretend it's Armageddon, it's not. Um, there's pockets where it is, but for the most part, it's not. So you're going to go back and you're going to get your Botox and you're going to get your psoriatic arthritis drugs and you're going to get your vaccines like you did normally. And when that happens, I think these are really, really undervalued. So that's in the healthcare space. In the energy space, I was taking a peek at my portfolio too. And you've got the pipeline companies like energy, um, like, sorry, enterprise products and Kinder Morgan. These are trading, at, uh, enterprises trading at about 13 times earnings. They have a Enterprise has a 8% yield. Kinder Morgan has a 7% dividend yield. The sector overall is beaten up over the last month. Meanwhile, oil prices have really sustained around 70, very, very solidly. Sure. So, like, there are good things you can do there. Um, on the REIT side, we own SL Green, which is a large office building um, owner in New York City. That's compelling. We can't pretend people aren't eventually going back to the office. And when you have an eight-year average lease term, you've got a long runway to let people return. Or National Retail Properties, which is a triple net lease owner of big box stores, trading with an almost 5% dividend yield. So there's a lot There's a lot to do out there. There's a lot, when you think the market's frothy or overvalued, there are a lot of places where you can find value or find um, little mini corrections sure. that have already happened. Well, Jenny Harrington of Gilman Hill Asset Management with the Get Back to Normal Trade. Thank you very much. We appreciate the picks. We'll see you later on. When we come back on the show here, RBC's Halima Croft is standing by to break down the key factors pumping that oil market higher right now, hovering at six-week high, speaking of the energy side of things. Plus, it's an automaker battle over tax breaks as Tesla and Toyota take on Ford and one of this country's top auto unions. And your morning's big money movers, including shares of Oracle, sliding for its latest quarterly result. A very busy hour still ahead when World Exchange returns after this commercial break. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Oil prices are hitting six-week highs today on worries another storm could impact production along the U.S. Gulf Coast, even as the industry is still struggling to return to normal following Hurricane Ida. Nicholas is now making landfall this morning in Texas as a Category 1 hurricane, but has now been downgraded to a tropical storm. The International Energy Agency, the IEA, coming out with its monthly oil report in just the past hour. The IEA saying the impact of hurricanes and other supply outages will take a chunk out of global production this year. It is cutting its supply rebound forecast by 150,000 barrels per day and demand forecast by 100,000 barrels per day, citing the impact of the Delta COVID variant. 
Let's talk more about all of this with Halima Croft, Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. She is also a CNBC contributor. Halima, oil prices keep creeping higher and so does my gasoline bill as well. Is there any end in sight? Well, obviously, the big concern right now for the market is the U.S. supply disruptions. We have not fully recovered from the impact of Hurricane Ida, both for oil and natural gas. And the focus is now on the latest storm. Will we have further supply shut-ins? Obviously, everyone is also watching the demand picture. I mean, U.S. gasoline demand remains very strong. China, which implemented lockdown restrictions, you know, over the summer, looks like it's not having a big impact on mobility there. So Chinese demand is holding up strong as well. So the picture does look very solid for oil. Big looming questions, though. If oil moves higher, OPEC is now meeting every month. Will OPEC come under pressure from the White House to put more barrels on the market? China and India are already tapping their strategic stockpiles to try to cool off prices. So I do think watching the response from consuming nations will be very important as well. So, Halima, if you take a look at the way that things are shaping out with the the price action, is it more balanced in your mind, given given what you expect with demand and the COVID Delta variant, given what we see with supply? Are these prices justified at this level or, or, or are they due for any kind of a pullback anytime soon? Well, I mean, I think these prices are justified at this level, but there are really important factors to watch. I mean, some analysts are talking about oil moving significantly higher next year. I think it's worth bearing in mind that we still have 5 million barrels plus of OPEC production off the market. And so if OPEC decides that more barrels are needed, they have this monthly mechanism and they can put more of these barrels on the market. I also think we should be watching, though, if we're thinking about a breakout to the upside. You know, do we potentially see some type of, you know, major supply disruption beyond what we're seeing from storms in the United States. Libyan production has struggled. Do we see something else in terms of a major outage that propels prices higher? That's what I would be looking for if we're thinking about moving materially higher in terms of oil prices. So, so if, we, if we're talking about this kind of move higher in oil prices materially or otherwise, is there a relative advantage in the markets right now to either the U.S. shale oil and gas producers versus those people in OPEC plus, I wonder whether or not it's good for our producers here in the U.S. to pump more, you know, more barrels out. I mean, Saudi Arabia and others are probably thinking the same thing right now. Isn't it a time where you could take advantage of these high prices because demand is there? Well, I mean, certainly I think shale producers are looking to ramp up production, but they remain under pressure from investors for discipline. I mean, the question is, you know, what does OPEC do? Because they're the ones right now, again, they're sitting on 5 million barrels plus of sort of dry powder in the oil market that they can put on if needed. And the question is, you know, at what point does Saudi Arabia decide they need to cool things off? I mean, I think that, you know, potentially concerns about demand destruction might kick in around $80. Brent, I don't think right now they're going to be particularly concerned at this moment about demand destruction. But again, they're meeting every single month, so they have the ability to adjust quickly. One other wildcard factor to watch is what happens with Iran. I mean, Iran is sitting on potentially a million extra barrels of oil exports. There had been a view that there was going to be some progress in getting back into the nuclear agreement. It looks like talks continue, are going to continue, but there's no imminent sign yet of a diplomatic breakthrough that would bring those Iranian barrels back on the market. Those barrels stay off the market. The market is tighter next year. All right. Tighter market next year. Halima Croft at RBC Capital Markets. 
Global Head of Commodity Strategy there. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Still on deck for the show, the world's biggest retailer finding itself in a fake partnership with one of the hottest cryptocurrencies on the market. Details on the fallout of that drama yesterday that led to that spike in Litecoin prices and and the subsequent fall. Keep it right here. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. That's a live look at 523 New York time, Times Square, Midtown Manhattan, where our colleagues over at Squawk Box are just about a little over half an hour away from starting their show up at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is not far away in New York with the latest. Good morning, Philip. Yeah, just a few blocks up from there. Dom, good morning. Today is the California gubernatorial recall election, and President Biden is out campaigning for Governor Gavin Newsom. He compared the leading Republican candidate, Larry Elder, to former President Trump. Governor Newsom is currently leading the race, according to recent polls. But even before this election, a website paid for by Elder's campaign predicted his defeat, making baseless claims of voter fraud. He told NBC News that we should all be worried about election integrity. The Met Gala officially returned to New York on Monday night, and this year's celebration was dedicated to the Metropolitan Museum of Arts exhibit called In America, a Lexicon of Fashion. New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez kicked things off with a bold political statement. She went with that stark white dress covered in the words, tax the rich. The world's fifth-ranked tennis player Naomi Osaka celebrated her heritage with her look alongside her boyfriend, rapper Corday. And you see there an extravagant gala debut for Lil Nas X, showing out with not one, but three regal outfit changes, each of them custom-designed by Donatella Versace. And we had an overtime thriller in the first Monday night football game of the season. The Ravens struck first on the road in Las Vegas with Tyson Williams dashing in on fourth and one for the game's first score. The Raiders, though, would respond 17 points they had in the fourth quarter, including a late field goal to force overtime. And in overtime, Derek Carr would find a wide open Zay Jones to put the game away. Vegas rolls some double threes on their opening night. They win it 33-27. to Dom, the NFL is back, and week one is in the books. What an amazing week one. If it's any kind of a preview for how the rest of the season, a 17-game season is going to go, it could be a great season for football. Philip Mena, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. You got it. Still on deck for the show, Democrats working to get party members in line to get President Biden's economic agenda delivered to his desk. Invesco's Andy Block lays out how the SALT deduction cap could likely be a key to making that a reality. Keep it right here. We'll be right back. Stocks look to build on the bounce back yesterday after snapping a five-day losing streak. But futures right now, they're holding on to some slight gains we could see at the opening bell. Arx Kathy Wood saying that Bitcoin could be poised to bounce back in a very big way. 
the $500,000 price target she's tagging on the cryptocurrency. And Apple preparing to pull back the curtain on the latest iteration of its popular iPhone, what the fresh hardware could mean for the tech giant's stock price. It's Tuesday, September 14th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Here is how your money and investments are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. Right now, futures, as we just showed you, pointing to some slight gains at the opening bell. The Dow is implied higher by just about 65 points. The S&P higher by about seven points and the Nasdaq higher by roughly five. This is after the Dow and the S&P both climbed for the first time in six sessions yesterday. The Dow climbing more than 260 points. While the S&P gained about a quarter of 1% thanks to a rally by energy-related companies. Let's get a check now on some of your morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is back with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hello, Dom. Dom, Walmart says it is looking into how a fake press statement announcing a partnership with Litecoin was issued. This according to Reuters. The statement from news release distributor Globe Newswire claimed that the world's largest retailer would begin accepting the crypto as a form of payment online. That led to nearly a 30 percent spike in the price of Litecoin. Walmart quickly issued a statement saying the press release was fake and Globe Newswire published a notice to disregard the release saying it was taking steps to prevent a similar incident from happening again. Sticking with cryptos, ARK Invest Kathy Wood is continuing to make a big bet on Bitcoin. Speaking with our Andrew Ross Sorkin at the annual SALT conference yesterday, Wood said Bitcoin's price could surge tenfold over the next five years thanks to increased interest by companies and institutional investors. We believe that the the price uh, will be tenfold of where it is today. So instead of 45,000, over 500,000. Confidence in Ether has gone up dramatically as we've seen the beginning of this uh, transition from proof of work to proof of stake. We'd still probably do 60% uh, Bitcoin, 40% Ether. And Reuters is reporting that Tesla and Toyota are set to clash with Ford and the United Auto Workers Union over a proposal by House Democrats over tax breaks for electric vehicles. The plan, which is part of the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending bill, would give union and U.S.-made EVs an extra $4,500 tax incentive. Tesla and foreign automakers operating in the U.S. do not have unions representing assembly workers and have fought UAW efforts to organize U.S. plants. Toyota does not currently build any full EVs in this country. Dom? Clash developing there between some automakers and unions. Thank you very much, Silvana. Let's stick with the Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending plan, with party leaders in the House formally pulling the curtain off that plan to help pay for all of it. The proposal includes top corporate and individual tax rates of 26% and nearly 40%, respectively. The plan comes as the White House tries to tamp down inflation fears among moderate Democrats that could keep them from supporting the president's agenda. For more now, I'm joined by Andy Blocker. He's the head of U.S. government affairs at Invesco. Andy, let's talk about the current state of play. It's not really three and a half trillion that we are expecting right now, but it's not exactly one and a half trillion that we are expecting either. What exactly is the compromise going to look like if this plan comes to fruition? So, Dom, that's exactly what we're looking at. So from the very beginning, we didn't think three point five trillion was the number. 
We've always been in the one to two trillion dollar range, but we're looking at it being on the higher end of that range, potentially two trillion. And partly because there's a real need to keep all the liberals in the House caucus on the vote for this package and not just this package, but the fiscal infrastructure package, which comes first. So so let's handicap this because you mentioned the House and, and we mentioned the Senate as well. This is tight. No matter how you slice it, the the Senate, you can't have any defections in the Senate right now to get anything done here. The House is only three votes at this point right now in terms of the swing that you need or or, or can afford. What exactly has to be done to appease the progressive Democratic side of things and those moderates who are trying to get something more moderately priced passed through this market? So that's the tightrope that Nancy Pelosi and Senator Schumer have to walk. And it's not just about Senators Cinema and Manchin in the Senate, which you hear a lot of press about, but it's also about the House members from high tax states like New York and New Jersey who really want salt relief. So we really see salt as a sweetener that could really allow some of the moderates to put a little bit more into the package to get closer to the $2 trillion range. I mean, you saw Congressman Gottheimer say when it first came out, no salt, no dice. You also see that uh, House Ways and Means Chairman Neal has recently said, look, I'm looking to put salt in our final package, even though I don't have it in my initial mark. And then, um, but on the other hand, you have fully reinstating salt costs almost $600 billion. And that's almost unpalatable because if you do that, you're going to have to raise taxes elsewhere, which moderates won't want to do, or you're going to have to forego some of the social spending that the the moderates want to do. So it's a tough road to hoe. So, so, okay. Uh, you know, uh, we're in the New York area here, so, so many of us, myself included, are, are, are part of this picture. It's fairly bipartisan, right? Republicans and Democrats in some of these states that have higher relative tax rates are trying to campaign for salt tax relief. Meanwhile, progressives, perhaps like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Senator Bernie Sanders, view it as helping the wealthy people out. How exactly then do you reconcile that voting situation and ultimately get some kind of a deal passed when you can't have any real defections on either side in the House or Senate? So you've hit the nail on the head. The problem is, even though you have Republicans supporting the concept of SALT, you're not going to get their vote on the reconciliation package. So the negotiations really between those on the moderate wing and the Democratic Party and those on the progressive wing. And the question is going to be, you know, what do the liberals really need to allow there to be a salt? So if you look at it, it's they're going to need all the different packages with respect to um, child tax credit, paid family leave, all the main parts in their in their package. But they're also going to need all the environmental things that didn't make it into the physical infrastructure package. So, look, this is not a time. This is probably the toughest job that uh, House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi's had. Normally, what you would do is you would just satisfy the progressive wing of your party by passing a huge bill in the House that you know is not going to get passed in the Senate. But there's been a lot of movement among the moderates in the House saying, look, I don't want to take that bad vote into the House unless I know that the Senate is also going to take on the provisions we're voting on in the House. Uh, Andy, I mean, one of the things that your clients have to be asking about right now is whether or not some of those tax rates I mentioned before, the upping of the capital gains tax rate, the high end of things, as well as a possibly 40 percent, you know, top tier marginal rate for, for some of the highest paying taxes out there. How exactly then 
do markets or the economy react if we do see a move higher in the top end of both capital gains and individual marginal tax rates? Do you think that the markets will handle that in stride or do you think it's something that will derail the market rally we've seen? So at Invesco, we've already seen or already looked at this as we expected all the things that House Ways and Means Chairman put out there. We expect the corporate rate to go from 21% to somewhere between 25 and 28%, which it did. We expected the individual rate to go to the top end almost 40%. And we expect the cap gains to be anywhere from 25 to 28. So there's nothing really new here. What we're really looking at is the size. If it, is it in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range or does it get bigger than we thought it might be and, and move up to the three trillion. We're still on the lower end of that, on the 1.5 to 2 trillion. If it moves to 3 trillion, um, which don't really think it will, that would be a newsmaker. All right, a newsmaker for sure. Andy Blocker at Invesco, thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Coming up on the show, your big money movers, including Apple, what we can expect from today's very, very highly talked about product event. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top headlines today. President Biden plans to nominate Georgetown law professor Alvaro Bedoya to the Federal Trade Commission. Bedoya is viewed as a privacy hawk. J.P. Morgan strategists say it's time for investors to consider cutting exposure to technology stocks and increase bets on economically sensitive companies like energy. They argue the negative effects from the Delta variant have peaked and the flight to safety is likely overdone. And Amazon sees the future of concert tickets in your palm. The Amazon One technology currently lets customers to Amazon stores buy groceries by swiping their hands over sensors. Now starting today, visitors to the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Denver, Colorado, will be able to use the same technology to connect their concert tickets to an account and then just hover their hand over sensors for entry. Other venues will feature this setup in the coming months. So keep an eye, biometrics to a whole new level here. Stay tuned. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories of the morning. First up, you got Oracle. First quarter revenues falling short of analyst forecasts as the company was hurt by growing competition in cloud computing. However, earnings did beat estimates and Oracle is projecting second quarter adjusted profits to come in above expectations. Those shares are down roughly 2% in the pre-market trade. Stock number two, Intuit. The maker of TurboTax and QuickBooks software is buying digital marketing company MailChimp for about $12 billion in cash and stock. It is the company's biggest acquisition ever. Last year, Intuit bought Credit Karma for just over $7 billion. Founded 20 years ago, MailChimp serves small and medium-sized businesses with half of its revenue coming from outside the U.S. Those shares for Intuit up about a quarter of 1% in the pre-market. And finally, Fox Corp. Its Fox Entertainment division is buying TMZ and its media properties from Warner Media. Terms have not been disclosed, but reports say the celebrity news and gossip platform is being valued at less than $50 million dollars. Fox already has deep ties with TMZ, with many local stations airing its shows, while TMZ has produced primetime specials for Fox as well. Another potential big money mover today is Apple. The tech giant is expected to formally unveil a new iPhone line along with some other key hardware. Josh Lipton has more on what to expect from that big California streaming event. 
Apple is, as always, tight-lipped about what's coming today, but here's what we expect. New iPhone models. Four new iPhones, a mini, regular Pro and Pro Max, featuring upgrades to the processor, battery, and camera. Open questions for investors here. Will Apple raise prices due to increasing memory costs and TSMC price increases? Remember, the baseline iPhone 12 starts at $799. Also, Apple, like so many others, is impacted by this ongoing chip shortage. So how does that impact supply of these new devices? In addition to the new iPhones, Apple is also expected to unveil a new watch, perhaps with a faster processor and larger screen. Analysts estimate the watch now accounts for about 5% of total company sales. Well-known Apple analyst Ming-Chi Kuo says Apple did face production issues with this new watch, but those issues have been resolved, he says, and the impact on the release schedule and shipment schedule is not significant. And potentially, we could also see new AirPods today as well. AirPods 3, analysts think, could sit between the existing AirPods and AirPods Pro with smaller or no stems and lower price than AirPods Pro. Analyst Apple does not break out that product, but analysts think AirPods probably now account for about 5% of overall revenue. The AirPods and watch are part of that broader wearables category, which Apple dominates globally, according to IDC, with about 30% market share. Back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Josh Lipton, for that report on what to expect from Apple today. For more on what we should look for in today's Apple event, let's bring in Alex Kantrowitz, founder of Big Technology. He's also a CNBC contributor. Alex, Josh laid out kind of the broad strokes. This is I've seen it referenced so many times. This is going to be about evolution and not revolution with regard to Apple products here. What exactly does Apple need to say today to help move the needle for this company? Well, it's interesting because I think it's less about what Apple says today and more about how it's positioning its software and services business. I mean, we think about this event, and typically these are big, massive events for Apple where you get a chance to take a look at its business and see where it's going. Uh, But these are fairly underwhelming upgrades to the iPhone. I mean, the biggest thing is that there's going to be a smaller notch at the top of your screen. I don't know anyone who's going to upgrade because the notch is a little bit smaller. So it's really about, for Apple, you know, in terms of moving the needle, it's about how do they make more money from the existing customers through a software and services business. And that's why I think it's kind of fascinating that we just had the epic ruling uh, last week where we see a hit to Apple as Apple software and services business. Uh, that, to me, is sort of the headline coming in. It's something inescapable. It's going to be looming over this event. Um, but as for the phones themselves, I mean, we all know what's coming. Uh, and it's not a massive improvement. We used to look forward to these events. They were, uh, you know, massive leaps in technology. Now they're more refinement events. So if it is the case that that's going to be what investors are kind of looking a little bit more at, what exactly ha- needs to happen for Apple? What can they say about new software updates coming up or, or about that services business that gets people excited? We, we, we know that Apple has been trying to move that narrative towards that kind of services side of the business that the margins as well. What, what, what exactly can we expect on that side of things? Any big releases on that front? I don't think there's going to be any big releases on, on that front today. Uh, we do know that last year, 235 million people bought new iPhones. So if you're an investor thinking about what it's going to look like in the future, you've got to be pretty happy with that number. Apple already has 700 million people who are subscribed through its devices. So Um, You know, it has that base. And now the question is, how does it grow that base over time? Honestly, you got a new iPhone, you know, whether it's people buying last year or some of the people who are going to follow along this year. uh, Those are ripe targets for Apple to continue to extract money uh, and grow those higher margin businesses. So uh, for Apple, this is more of a stay the course moment. Uh, I don't think you're going to see any of the wow moments that 
you're used to seeing in the past. And honestly, maybe that's fine for the company's business. It's what it's looking at. It's where it's positioned itself toward. And I think we should get used to the fact that these Apple release events, you know, aren't going to be as exciting as they've been in the past. And for Apple's business, that might just be totally okay. If it's totally okay, I mean, and, and there's no doubt, I mean, as a mature company, it, it has to kind of face different hurdles coming up. We know that these product events haven't led to blockbuster stock moves to the up or downside, although predominantly in recent memory, recent quarters, it's been to the downside. What exactly then is the larger macro catalyst? What does, what does Apple need to tell investors over the next several quarters to keep this momentum going, to keep it the biggest company out there in history? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it needs to show that it's growing that small base of services revenue. So we're talking about, you know, a few billion. uh, And it's still, I mean, put that alone, it's a massive company. So give Apple credit there. Uh, But Apple's been telling us that that's where it's moving. And so if that's where it's moving, then we should see some growth. And I think that as it it continues to show growth, it's going to obviously have to fend off more of these legal challenges. I mean, Epic was the first. Uh, and it already dealt Apple a setback, although Apple you know, could claim that it won. Um, what are we going to see come down the pike next? I think that's really important. And of course, like I, I don't want to minimize the fact that device sales are going to be super important to this company. I mean, iPhone revenue is already uh, maintains uh, half, half of Apple's uh, revenue, and I think that's going to be crucial. So I do think it's still a foundational part of the business. Uh, it's just going to be less exciting. And again, it's going to be all about growing the pie and, and showing those uh, higher numbers on the services business and the software side is going to be super important for Apple. All right. Alex Kantrowitz of Big Technology, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Big Apple event coming up this afternoon. In addition to Apple's big event, we have a big interview coming up on CNBC later on this morning. It's Amazon CEO Andy Jassy speaking exclusively with our friends over at TechCheck, 11 a.m. Eastern time. Here's a little preview of what he says about perceptions that Amazon is a monopoly. We don't have the ability to, to raise prices in any kind of unfettered way. In fact, if you look at what we normally do, we're constantly taking prices down because there's a lot of competition in these markets. So, again, it, it sometimes the rhetoric sounds good, but you've got to look at what reality is. And at 1% of worldwide retail, it's, it's hard to argue that's a monopoly. Is Amazon really a deflationary force? Don't miss that full conversation later on this morning. Andy Jassy, Amazon CEO, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, on Tech Check. Well, coming up on the show, Wall Street's wall of worry, the big questions and concerns for stocks as we race towards the fourth quarter. And if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. Worldwide Exchange, audio format. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Futures are pointing to more gains for the stock market today, but there's no shortage of worries for investors, including talk of higher taxes, continuing COVID concerns, and a Fed that appears primed to tighten some policy in the coming months. Joining me now is Potomac Wealth Advisors President and Founder Mark Avalone. It's a wall of worry. It's been there before. Markets keep going higher. Is there anything on the radar for you that should derail this market rally? Well, we had the biggest market worry taken off the table at Jackson Hole, and that is the Federal Reserve. And and Jerome Powerful, who who is the biggest driver of these markets, basically said, uh, we will taper, but we're not going to tighten too tightly. So the biggest worry, the worries about a crash, 
those are kind of taken off the table. But it could be death by a, a dozen cuts here, especially when we look at the, the list that you mentioned and the impact of taxes, which I think hasn't been, been fully resonating with investors, how that's going to hit the bottom line and corporate earnings. These tax cuts are significant. I mean, the market rallied when we got the tax cuts a few years ago. Why not the reverse or why not the, the same sentiments on the other side when there's talk of significant tax hikes? both for corporations and for individuals. So, so we talk often about what's priced in the market, what's not priced in the market. It, it, it's obvious right now that over the last several months here, things have been priced in, positive news has been priced in, and yet the markets keep on pricing in more positive news. Just how much more positive news needs to come out for the market to keep going higher? What, what else is left? Well, well, we got the positive news last quarter with those massive earnings gains, and they're going to be hard to repeat. So that's an expectation that I think we need to begin to manage a little better as investors. In terms of catalysts, I don't really see a, a, a heavy new catalyst coming in between now and year end. I think we are going to be in a holding pattern. I think the biggest next, the next big news is going to come out of D.C., whether it's the size of an infrastructure bill, which had driven up, if you recall, that had driven up cyclicals and the values trade the material stocks, it, it really rocked them to the upside. And now we're barely talking about uh, an infrastructure bill other than maybe this $1 billion that that was already passed. So, or excuse me, agreed to at least verbally by the senators. Is, uh, so we're uh, not so, seeing, we're not seeing any major catalysts that are positive. So, so I, I want to bring you back to, to a catalyst that, that a lot of folks are following right now, and that's this argument that deflation or rather inflation is here, that it's not just transitory. We heard ARK Invest Kathy Wood saying that, her, that, that the concern should be deflation, that prices are going to come down. Is there, is there any kind of a, a view in your mind of how investors kind of position for this notion that there is developing a, a tug of war here between those people who fear inflation and those who say that prices are going to come down eventually? Inflation is not going to be a permanent 1970s-style fear for investors. I've been saying that for, for, for the entire year. And I think investors need to realize the biggest macro factors facing inflation are, are aging demographics, tremendous innovation, and the return of globalization. And those will suppress prices once we get through this supply shock and once we get through this uh, reopening and the impacts that it has had on prices. The other point about inflation is everyone's saying, well, these wage gains aren't going away. That may be correct, but inflation is measured year over year, and we're not going to have the same wage gains in 2022 as we've had in 2021. So I don't see inflation as a big problem. I do think the Fed needs to taper, maybe not tighten. And I think any movement by the Fed is going to take some froth out of those long dated tech stocks that don't have current cash flows. I think that's a risk for investors who are bidding up speculative non-cash flowing tech. And that's something that concerns me as, as a money manager. All right. Mark Avalona, Potomac. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Let's take a look at what's happening with futures right now because they are pointing to some at least muted gains at the opening bell. The Dow implied higher by now just 17 points. The Nasdaq lower by two points and the S&P by three points as well. Keep it right here. That does it for Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 